adversaries are relentless, and they're only getting smarter, faster, and more sophisticated. Knowing their game is the only way to beat them. That's why we're here. Learn what it takes to protect against even the most sophisticated attacks. Welcome to the Adversary Universe podcast. All right, good mess up. I'm, I'm, I was just trying to get it right once you hit record. I wanted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can mess up. We're human, aren't we? Well, are, we are you? I don't, I don't know. know. There is Christian GPT out there. That is very got true. This, uh, this AI model going for you. I know. I'm. Uh, I can... I'm questioning every day how how long my career is going to last here in this uh, in this podcast fame era. That I forget have. that. Do you ever think like you're living in the Matrix? All the time, like the whole simulation thing. You're in a Python script somewhere on on my. Uh, I'm basically I'm, an extension of my old MySpace page. <laughs> you just look at that and just that—that's essentially how you figure out the type of person I am. The type no, of music. I never got into MySpace. More, you more never Friendster got into MySpace? for me. Yeah, really? More of a Friendster guy. Uh, I don't even know I Friendster. Really? Oh, it's it's the best. Is it a real thing, Friendster? It was. It was the it was the original social media. I had no idea. I was a MySpace guy, and um, I felt oh, so confident. Oh, you kids! You kids! Oh, with you! Your... Yeah. <laughs> With your with your login music and your fancy <laughs> glitter backgrounds and you know that was all about uh, me feeling pretty good about myself, right? That's how you express yourself, right? As a human, w- w- through MySpace. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, I've always said you're a true artist. Oh, I appreciate you. Am I a true artist? On MySpace, apparently. <laughs> well, extra sparkle. Th- extra sparkle. Well, I think it's a, the beauty, and it's been a great opportunity to been to be a host here. Uh, with you on this uh, on this podcast, I think we we have an amazing uh, lineup of guests this year. Um, we've gotten some really Speaking good feedback. Speaking of sparkle, Speaking of sparkle um, you know you know what's interesting is there's I've been getting a lot of feedback. So first of all, thank you for to everyone that has reached out uh, with feedback and just some very praising remarks on uh, last year's uh, episode list. I think it's a really positive uh, platform that we have where we're talking about very relevant themes. We're talking about the bad guys, um, but there's really one specific phrase that I think was 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 very big, and it was the opening phrase that you used in our original episode. Do you remember what that was? Right? Oh it's yeah, kind of it's, the, it's the crowd strike mantra. You don't it have a malware a problem; you have an adversary problem. I love that. And uh, those adversaries are humans, which is you know I think one of the really interesting dynamics of what we do is that you have to focus on the technical aspects, right? And we we can look at disassembled code or decompiled code and we can we can try to parse through javascript and all of the things that we deal with the technical artifacts but yeah. those technical artifacts are built by people they are yeah there's and a human behind that keyboard there is and speaking of humans behind keyboards um we have a fun guest today that i'm really excited to bring on Ooh! and so cameron mallon is going to be joining us and he I'll let him introduce himself, but I met him probably about a year ago. We were introduced, and he had just come out of the FBI and had been working on, and I forgot the name of the show, but you know the behavioral analysis unit is something that the FBI has to kind of understand oh, the yeah. motivations and how uh, how bad guys think. There's and a show on this, Criminal Minds or something like that? Criminal Minds, that's yeah, the one yeah, I was yeah. thinking of. Yeah, yeah. And, and so Cameron built the cyber BAU uh, f- and and really kind of started bringing the focus of 
what do we know about these cyber threat actors, humans behind these attacks? So um, we're gonna we're gonna bring him in to the podcast today and uh, and talk to him about that. Oh, this is exciting! Well, welcome, Cameron Mallon. Are you on? I am here. Thank you, guys. Great to be here. Good to join you. Oh, thanks for thanks for coming on. Uh, well, this is long a great time guest, listener, first Adam. time caller. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great guest, Adam. Let's 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 talk about some of your background, Cameron. Do you mind maybe spending a little time just you know quickly highlighting um, you know what that profiling work looked like? Yeah, yeah. no, for sure. So as as Adam was saying, I left the FBI. I retired in in June of last year in 2023. And before that, starting in 2012, I joined the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit. Uh, prior to that, for the, the 10 years prior to that, I was in Los Angeles Division in the cyber program as a special agent investigating and analyzing uh, cyber cases, national security and criminal. And around 2011, 2012, um, made the transition over to the BAU. It's a selection process you, you put in for it. It's a competitive position at the time when I had put in, there was no cyber capability in the units. And I, I guess it might be good to describe what the BAU is because it's it's kind of a complex thing. There are actually, at this point, five BAUs. Um, initially, back in the day, back in the 1970s, there was something known as the Behavioral Science Unit. And eventually that became the BAUs in, in 1984. Um, and I can get to that history if you'd like. But when I got in, there were um, there were four BAUs, and there was um, there was not a cyber capability. Um, the cyber capability there had been different efforts over the years in the early two thousands. Uh, there was an effort to get like an interviewing program going, very similar to the old serial killing style of of interviewing uh, offenders in custody. And then from, say, 2005, 2009, there was another effort to get a cyber program going. And it just there wasn't a lot of traction. Uh, there weren't a lot of resources thrown to these things. They were really great efforts to get some some sustainability and a, a program going. Uh, but those ultimately dissolved off. So let's say from 2009 to 2012, when I got in, there wasn't a cyber component. So I actually came in through... BAU-1, and BAU-1 um, has the Behavioral Threat Assessment Center. It's persons of concern. It's people that are on a pathway to intended violence, uh, stalking, active shooters, domestic terrorism, counterterrorism, bombings, um, weapons of mass destruction, and arsons. And at the time, BAU-2 was crimes against adult victims. Um, and that is the traditional, when you guys were mentioning criminal minds, that is where sort of the Behavioral analysis unit started as the behavioral science unit looking at aberrant crimes against adults, serial offenders, serial rape, serial murder, and then crimes against children and crimes against children uh, victims was BAU-3 and still is BAU-3, and that's looking at horrible crimes against child victims. Um, and so by 2012, there was a uh, an exploratory effort to get a cyber program going and um, there was a, a profiler that was over in one of the other units that was kind of making phone calls and asking around and trying to figure out from an exploratory standpoint, like, is, this, is there a, a desire for this again? Um, and there was certainly interest and a really good set of leaders in the front office that were looking to get this ramped up. And by 2012, as you guys can imagine, you know, cybercrime and, and cyber national security is a huge issue. So the, the BAUs were looking to build a program 
Um, when I came in, I was in BAU one and um, I had some conversations with folks and they're like, you have your background is cyber. Are you open to, you know, standing up a, a cyber component in the BAUs again and getting this thing going? Um, this time it was sort of very deliberate. They wanted a very concise and detailed white paper about like how it would look and what would it consist of and what the mission statement would be and how the processes would work. So I wrote that up in say June, July. And then in fall of that year in 2012, the Cyber Behavioral Analysis Center or the CBAC was created. And that was a cadre of folks. And this went with a bigger reorganization that happened. So there were a lot of bodies moved around to create this unit. It became part of BAU2 with threats, BAU1 state terrorism and, and um, domestic terrorism. BAU4 uh, became crimes against adults and BAU3 state crimes against child victims. So there were these four BAUs um, and that's where the CBAC was born. Eventually, a few years later, BAU2 became the CBAC. So the Cyber Behavioral Analysis Center um, and the counterintelligence piece, which is known as the BAP, all live in BAU2 and that unit is specifically for assessing uh, cyber offenders. Got it. So we're, we're, we're talking about now this, this behavioral analysis unit that is focused on um, understanding the motivations um, for these cyber crimes that we're ultimately seeing across a multitude of verticals. This includes uh, attacks that are focused on enterprise, but are you also looking at attacks focused on individual consumers as well? So the, the beauty of that unit and the beauty of behavioral profiling generally is it's for uh, a whole host and, and uh, sliding scale of different offenses. So it could be for the enterprise, it could be for criminal attacks, right? It could be for national security motivated attacks. It could be against an individual, could be against a group and organization. Um, so really it's agnostic in terms of um, how the victim was selected. Victim selection is considered and looked at in, in any assessment, but that doesn't dictate when you would do a, a, a behavioral assessment. What's interesting about it too is that the cyber domain kind of transcends crime in so many different ways too that when you do have a serial killer there's probably some you know you think about like the uh boston strangler or the uh one of those kind of famous serial killers they yeah. now today right are, are doing research online they're uh you know maybe posting things online when they you know it was a btk that used to send the things to um the newspaper and stuff like that the encrypted messages or right son of sam or things like that that you know they, they kind of tease the media and, and some of those things so you know they're doing profiling of kind of traditional violent criminals yes. that are using the cyber domain but then there's this whole other concept of criminals that are exclusively exclusively using the cyber domain adam this is really astute of you to, to bring up because i think um, when people think of, of cyber, sometimes people glaze over, right? They think of zeros and ones and how could this have any relative um, association with people? And to your point, when we were uh, assessing things in the unit, when we were um, assessing individuals, we were often asked to team up with our respective units. There could be somebody who was doing a serial killing and that unit would come over to our unit and say, can you help us look at this person's behaviors online, their digital artifacts. And to that idea, I think it's worth describing some of the way that we took original 
principles of profiling from John Douglas and Royal ha Roy Hazelwood and Robert Ressler and the traditional idea of, of understanding the artist, you have to look at their artwork and to understand the criminal, you have to look and study the crime itself. And so our position of, of looking at these types of attacks, whether for computer intrusions or for a serial killer, is digital behavioral criminalistics. And simply what that means is, is looking at things as digital crime scenes, is looking at the way they select what they do as digital weapons and the processes of how they navigate start from a motivation. We look at their emotions and their thinking processes. So to your point, Adam, we're not, we can apply this in a very elegant way, whether it is for somebody who's looking to cause damage, uh, exfiltration of data for national security purposes, or we can apply it towards individuals doing crimes of intentional violence because these digital crime scenes render either way. The humanness and, is there either way. And how, in your experience, and you know, I know um, we use at CrowdStrike lots of different types of, of um, process and lots of different disciplines to think about these threat actors, whether they be uh, psychological, uh, some of the things that you're talking about, um, linguistic artifacts and things like malware. I remember you know, one of the first conversations you and I had, we talked about how we had been looking at this malware and and rather than describing the parent-child relationship in a plugin, it referred to it as father-son. Yeah. And we from that kind of derived some linguistic artifacts uh relating to a non-Western education, uh, let's say, and you know, ultimately that that tied back to some malware we associated with Iran later. But when you think about things, um, you know, one of the things you've talked about before was the dark triad, I think, the, the dark tetrad. Uh, yeah. Do you want to maybe uh, help our listeners understand what that, that is and how that pertains to a digital crime scene and to a digital actor? Sure. Yo, this is this is a really interesting space. So um, my interest in this and the way that I really became immersed in this in cyber was interviewing offenders that were exhibiting some unusual behavior and, and, and say a field office would bring us a case and go, you know, this person's acting a, a really unusual way. And we would do direct interviews or assessments. Uh, we would call those cyberological assessments. We would look at their psychology and their behaviors and how they interact with others and also their technical capabilities. And there were a few folks that just were really, really problematic. And I would do these interviews with a operational psychologist, a really fantastic psychologist. And we would we started off observing, hey, this this is somebody exhibiting some very aversive and manipulative and callous traits. And it dawned upon us that we should start really looking at this closely across cyber offenders and maybe even using psychometric instruments, direct assessment instruments to, if they're open to filling those out and seeing how they might um, reflect on these instruments. And so to your question about the dark triad and the dark tetrad, um, the dark triad was first named and created in 2002. There were some researchers that were looking at the body. I think I remember playing that video game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so these researchers looked at, um, there was this enormous body of literature on psychopathy, um, basically psychopaths. And I'll, I'll describe that in a second here, but they were looking at that. They were looking at something known as Machiavellianism, which is not a diagnosable personality disorder, but it's a, 
Um, some describe it as a syndrome. Some describe it as a aversive personality trait. And they were also looking at narcissism. And, but the, there was this idea of what's called construct creep, meaning that the bodies of literature were basically having all these things uh, very hard to discern between each other because they were just going so far within the particular personality construct that it was hard to discern them. So these researchers did a study and they started looking at these characteristics, especially at what's called a subclinical level. And subclinical simply means that the person is not in need of um, uh, a forensic or clinical intervention. They're functioning normally. They might even be thriving in society and in interpersonal relationships, but they have these characteristics, maybe certain aspects of these characteristics at a non-clinical level. And so what the researchers did is they used different instruments to discern that, wait a minute, these three characteristics, so it started off as a triad, it was Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy, that these, they have an overlapping common core of callousness but they have their own distinct traits as well. And so they were able to say this is a dark triad. It's a constellation of aversive personality constructs at a, at a subclinical, again, not diagnosable level. And it might be helpful to, to describe what those are. And then I'll get into the tetrad, as you mentioned. It, it almost sounds like the Matrix, you know, that scene yeah. where he's like one of these, you know, <laughs> you, you have these two things, you, you help your neighbor, you pay your taxes, and, and then you have this other life. And one of them has promise and one of them does not type of thing. Right. right. I mean, it, I mean, you can be, there are a lot of different aspects. There's a concept known as snakes and suits or, um, successful dark tribe. That dark is a tetra. good conference name right there. Exactly. Snakes and suits. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I thought and, you were and, reading my dating profile when you read <laughs> narcissism and Machiavellianism and psych, uh, psychopathy, by the way. I'll have to look but, at uh, your dating profile. No, maybe I, I, I've removed it. He wasn't oh, reading it. He was reading it. into it. Ah, <laughs> nice. <laughs> so he's out there, ladies. <laughs> he's, he's, available. There out. he's available. He's available. <laughs> so, you know, Machiavellianism, I guess I'll start with Machiavellianism because that's the one that has a lot of curiosity and, and you know, they all kind of do, but... Machiavellianism was created in the 70s. This was two researchers that were looking at Niccolo Machiavelli, who's from the 1500s. He was a, a, a political philosopher, uh, wrote the book, The Prince, and they looked at the book, The Prince, and Machiavelli himself had this very kind of cold, asymmetric morality to how to govern. And his, his philosophy essentially was the ends justifies the means. So they basically broke out uh, these constructs from the prince and came up with this personality, what they would call syndrome or trait, where people are really deceptive. Machiavellian personality is is really manipulative. People are instruments. So there's what's called instrumentalism, uh, interpersonal deception. There's a cold selfishness. There's calculation. They do a lot of what's called self-monitoring too. So they're very in tune with like how they're coming across and how they uh, manage their impression to others. There's a lot of ingratiation and um, persuasion. So that's that's Machiavellianism. Um, narcissism, there is a, a diagnosis, a narcissistic personality disorder. What we're talking about here, though, is a subclinical version of that. So when people are grandiose, they feel entitled, they believe that they're special or superior. And, and oftentimes what you'll see is even though they're grandiose or feel entitled, their successes are incommensurate. So you may know people like this that 
even though they're walking around quite haughty or believe they have special status or power, they, they, you look at their body of work or who they are, and, and there's a complete incommensurate level of success compared to how they're acting. They usually get very um, angry or lash out if they're criticized because they don't believe they deserve criticism at all. It's called nar um, narcissistic injury. So you'll see that. So this is work from the 19, late 1970s, 1979, where there was an instrument created called the MPI uh, 40. And is yeah. that, just to go on a total tangent here, is yeah. that where when you hear some of the guidance they give to people if they're if they're being like held captive, like saying your name and like trying to like, is, is that tied to uh, trying to like not uh, uh, create that that injury that you just referred to? Oh, that's a really good question, Adam. So that's actually creating what's called personalization. So if if someone is doing a, a crime of violence or they're they're um, trying to make something transactional, like a a extortion or ransom, and they're holding someone hostage, they're trying to make it is is the the least amount of uh, personal aspect to it that they can, where it's they're depersonalizing the individual they have held hostage so that it's easier to maybe get through that process and, and not have any feelings or emotions that would cause them to retract what they're doing or, or capitulate to demands. So that may not necessarily, you know, be indicative of a subclinical personality disorder, but it's more of an effort to stay stalwart and in um, being transactional and getting what the motivation is in that instance, which oh, is money. Kind of yeah. distance yourself from any type of empathy. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Whereas as someone who's like a psychopath naturally is callous, does not have empathy, and they typically don't have remorse. They are cynical. In fact, they, they can be contemptuous to the feelings and rights of and suffering of others. They can actually get angry at those things. And where you see um, psychopathy is is at a subclinical level versus, um, say, antisocial personality disorder, which is the the diagnosable um, version. Is there's these other interpersonal behavioral and affective things you'll see with psychopathy, like there's this what's known as superficial charm. You might see a parasitic lifestyle, an inflated sense of self worth, um, and these are measured in different scales than, than all, traditional. All things you find in uh, spades on the internet. Right. I mean, you'll exactly. see you'll see a lot of a, a lot of these things, right? You'll see on the internet, you'll see how people um come off. The problem discerning these things from say people's profiles online is, you know, what are they trying to do with those profiles? Are they impression managing so that they influence a targeted audience? Are they doing it for getting followers and subscribers? Now you're talking about influencers. Likes? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's very true. Uh, yeah, exactly. Speaking exactly. of Christian's uh, yeah. online profile. Oh, man. Um, hey, well, let me ask this. So what yeah. do you think about the threat actors from a, a cyber perspective and, and motivation? We're typically looking at nation state threat actors. And so there's probably a, a whole set of things that you would you would see there that are more um, organizational and less individual in, right. in many ways. Um, right. We have e-criminals, financially motivated criminals who tend to be uh, probably on that narcissistic uh, psychop psychopathy. Yeah. Did I say that right? And uh, they don't really care who they hurt or or they have different ways to kind of rationalize what they're doing to kind of make it a victimless, victimless crime, I guess, in their minds. And then we have hacktivists who are politically or socially motivated. 
Mm-hmm. And so do you, as I kind of start talking about the, the e-crime as, as one that you could see having that narcissistic uh, personality, is there different things that you can observe across those different aspects of the motivational spectrum that would, that would lend themselves to some of the analysis that, that you're doing from a behavioral perspective? Sure. So particularly with, with criminal organizations, and, and you made a really interesting point that it's, it's harder to flesh these things out on a group level you know, a group dynamics level, because we don't know why uh, that the particular ethos of the group, you know, you would never attribute a personality characteristic to a group. So that's a little bit harder. But if there's like individuals in the group, if there are actors that you know of in a group and they're, they might be proficient or have certain characteristics that make them optimized for certain parts of the, the group's activities. So for instance, to your idea of, of, um, you know, being narcissistic and and having an inflated sense of self, it might be that the way that they they come off and the, their confidence in doing things, um, we know that they're um, a little more. The studies aren't great on this, or maybe a little smarter. There's a little cognitive bump, say, with the narcissist versus psychopathy and Machiavellianism and sadism. Um, and and Machiavellian is, I would say, Adam, that. Where you see, a, whether it's e-crime or even um, nation state, a lot of the attacks, because it starts with the human level of um, availing on cognitive vulnerabilities through social engineering, a lot of the really great techniques that these attackers are using um, strike as, as Machiavellian, right? They're, they're being very deceptive. They're using people to get to what they need. They're super manipulative. There's a real callous disregard for who cares what happens to these people. We just need to get what we want. The ends justify the means, right? Uh, so you do tend to see a lot of that. Now, what's important when, as a profiler, you're going to assess um, a particular actor. So if, if we were looking at, say, the person who's on a chat log during a ransom negotiation, you know, we'd be looking at the negotiator versus say the initial access broker, the malware developer, or even, uh, the people that are the the core members or the pen testers, they right. The pen testers using a, a, which, uh, you know, that, that also gets to the kind of, how do they try to rationalize this to make it seem as if they're, they're not doing something bad, right? Like we see that all the time from a, a threat actor lexicon where they'll they'll call themselves pen testers kind of trying to make it seem as if oh. they're, oh, so yeah. they they're feel like justified doing... in their actions essentially yeah, yeah. Oh, no like so, so we've seen that they'll try to legitimize what they're doing and almost make it seem like a security service so they, they call right. themselves pen testers oh, and then I see. What, at the end right if the ransom gets paid or even in the in the negotiation you know what you'll see is that they kind of refer to what they did as a security assessment yeah so there's oh, a couple reasons for that, Adam. There's th- th- one of it could be a what's called a reframe, right? They're taking something that is clearly malevolent and they're doing a benevolent reframe to make it look like what they're doing is is altruistic and helpful. And that can be done for cover and concealment of a crime where they're they're showing lack of intent as doing something that wasn't, you know, a, against that person's will. So that's one aspect. There could be some in their minds, maybe, hey, if I make this look legitimate, maybe there's there's less of a penalty for this or it looks consensual. The other part, and I, I think we've talked about this before, Adam, which is um, cognitive dissonance. And 
if if someone does not have these aversive personality traits and they actually their value and belief system and their attitude system is hey doing these things is wrong what people do to overcome this the feeling this really horrible feeling that happens when your behavior does not comport with your attitude and belief system you come up with what are called cognitive distortions you justify what you're doing by virtue of these distorted thoughts to overcome this feeling of cognitive dissonance so that you can keep doing behaviors that you know are not in accordance with your attitudes. And this goes back really to the 50s, the research on that. that that's really interesting because the other thing that we've seen has been in some of the marketplaces where they're transacting and interacting with each other, there's oftentimes kind of anti-capitalist sentiment espoused as well that almost makes it seem as if they're doing this for some political ideology which, I, I mean, you're not generating revenue and calling it anti-capitalism. <laughs> Generally, they try to use that to kind of uh, justify what they're doing. Right, right. And so that's another that's another way that a lot of these attackers will, will try to make it look like what they're doing is based on ideology or something altruistic or important. But really, their true motivation is self-interested. But it, it doesn't it doesn't come off as is um, special. It doesn't come off. You're just another criminal if you're doing it for money. So what they do is they reframe uh, what they're doing as something based on a higher level of thinking or philosophy or belief system, even though that's totally false. And um, it, it, it can, you know, oftentimes what you see a lot of the work that you guys do and uh, some researchers will do out there is it will uncover that that all along these these claims of benevolence and ideology were really cover and concealment for a criminal enterprise. Interesting. Hey, Cameron, you mentioned this uh, dark triad construct, but there's also the dark tetrad. So, do you mind explaining the difference between the, the two? Yeah. No, that's a great question, Christian. So, in I mentioned that the triad was introduced by Dr. Paulus and, a, and another researcher in 2002, and by 2013 people started looking at sadism and sadism in the sense, not sexual sadism or paraphilic sadism, but sadism is, is known as everyday sadism, which sounds horrible, right? Like every day sure. I'm sadistic, but really what, what they were looking at in 2013 is, is there this um, subclinical aspect of enjoying or getting satisfaction from being cruel? Is there, are there people that have an intrinsic motivation to inflict pain and suffering on innocent people and humiliating people. And do they relish that? And that's very different than the things I talked about. Psychopathy, narcissism, Machiavellianism don't have that. So Twitter. <laughs> I believe it's called uh, X now. It's X. Adam. How <laughs> sorry, dare you sorry, call Elon. it Twitter? So this is a very different thing. So the question then came is, is this just another is this comorbid or is this just merely another function of these other aversive characteristics or is this its own personality construct? So the research done in 2013 uh, verified that this is its own personality construct and they created the tetrad. So it went from three to four and sadism, while it has an overlapping core of callousness as well, when we think of sadism, the, the giveaway, and I'll, I can you know give an example of someone I interviewed that's a sadist. Uh, that has the subclinical sadist was a tetrad actually is they will at their own cost like they are so um 
searching for and gaining satisfaction from cruelty and humiliation, that it might actually, they'll go out of their way to get this. Whereas a psychopath, they are callous about the suffering of somebody else, but they're not going to, they're going to instrument somebody versus They're pursuit. not going out to, that's not what's driving them. Exactly. It's a byproduct. Exactly. Whereas this, the, the everyday sadism, yes. they derive pleasure from that. Exactly, Adam. Yep. Got it. Yep. Um, so, you know, we, we interviewed one uh, cyber attacker, and this is somebody that was going out of his way to find out um, he had, a, at that time, a, uh, an intimate partner, and he was finding out what made that person happy. And so he intentionally made himself come off as that thing so that the person found him more attractive and had feelings for him. But he did that only so that when he broke up with that person, that it would hurt more. And so this is going oh, wow. way out that, of your that's, way. That's a super yeah, that's, twisted that's, individual. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's very oh, that's yeah. dark, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's. I mean, that's an again. I mean, a pretty glaring example of this person in a very calculated way wanted to cause the suffering or wanted to be cruel to somebody, and went it's, at it length. Sounds like the dentist system. If you're familiar with uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia, <laughs> I am not familiar with that. What is that? Yeah. It's uh, he, he's got this system for for dating, and it's basically that, right? Like, how, oh. how can he like have the most Im- uh, amount of uh, of 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 pain inflicted on on, on oh, gosh. He's, he's shooting? Yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's it, tough. right there. That's, that's yeah, that's very, that's very malicious, right? So 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 obviously, everybody's so now dark... googling. Uh, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah, listeners, you know, don't Google yet. Finish the episode. Um, <laughs> but it's like okay, demonstrate so... <laughs> value and then separate entirely and. Oh, that's wow. tough. Really? That I got to look me. at that. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So Cameron, this dark tetrad personality construct that you're describing mm-hmm. obviously puts a major underscore under this concept of, you know, these, these individuals uh, are focused on just exploiting their respective victims as much as possible. And there's this kind of ruthlessness essentially that's yeah. built into this, to, to, to this personality trait. Like certain, maybe let's try to tie that into some of the e-crime activities or campaigns that we've been tracking right on how that not only impacts maybe an enterprise but even on the consumer side right we have some you know so easy to hide hide behind that keyboard and there's so much anonymity that that allows someone to mask themselves and you know i'm sure that because the attacker may not even see their respective victim at the end of the day they just look like a bunch of ones and zeros right so there's there's probably a complete lack of empathy from that perspective right yes so yeah no this is a a a really great point christian and um i have had uh attackers who I've interviewed to, to your last comment, they would say, you know, I didn't really feel anything. I would just shut my computer screen. And so yeah, they're exactly. able to create a, a, a barrier and, and, it, and they are able to dehumanize and, and, and do just what you said. On an e-crime side, there are certain crimes that really the pathway of the crimes have a lot of these aspects. Now it's hard to discern and tease out are you know are all the people that are doing these crimes have these aversive uh, subclinical characteristics, but the crimes themselves um, demonstrate a lot of these characteristics. One would be pig butchering. Um, mm. And in pig butchering, it's it, it really started and I'm, I know that the CrowdStrike um, has definitely looked at these these trends and has been kind of a leader in putting out intel on these. But this is something that became popular during COVID. 
And the way it works is somebody is going to use some very deceptive practice and curiosity inducing practice by, they'll just send a text on WhatsApp or someplace else and they'll just say hi or something that's out of context. It's not someone that's in the contact list. It's, it's a stranger. And what they will do is if someone um, is, you know, um, receptive to that, they may say, oh, no problem. What will usually happen is a script from there. And the script will lay out a narrative of this person being very successful. It's usually tied to a, a social media profile that it's very glamorous. It's usually good looking people doing exciting things in exciting places and living the high life. And when this actually just happened, uh, I was uh, talking to uh, my brother-in-law and he, he had gotten a text from somebody and it was kind of a, hey, are you going, do you want to come to Tahoe this weekend? And he was like, I don't, I don't know who this person is. Like, of course I want to go to Tahoe. And I started explaining what pig butchering was. And that's basically how you start that conversation. Right. And then, and then it turns into a, oh, you know, I'm doing so well because I've been investing in this platform. Right. And, and that's how it starts. Yeah. Exactly. So what they do is they they off ramp you to their motivation, which is the way I was able to accumulate and do these really exciting things is based on this opportunity I had. And I'm really good at it. And so they use a little social influence there as well. A lot of social influence, actually. And so they are able to um, use small gains. They do a, a confidence scheme, basically a, a modern version of a confidence scheme where someone might invest. So say that your, your relative um, buys into this narrative. Maybe they invest just a little bit of money and they get their returns back and, 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 a, and a, say a huge amount. And it feels really great. Like, wow, this person really knows what they're doing. So they uh, adduce this feeling of trust and confidence. And usually where it ends up is uh, they invest a larger amount. So the idea of pig butchering is they fatten the person up, right? They make them feel confident and <laughs> then they slaughter them, uh, which is they leave them high and dry. They'll invest a huge amount of money and they just go dark entirely and the person's out all their, their funds. So you're saying I'm well, never they, getting they, money back. Well, <laughs> Christian, they, I hate to break it to you, but you're not. <laughs> you're not getting money <laughs> But what they do is they kind of like lure you in, and the, and you know the the more that they they show you the returns, the more that you're going to want to invest, and then they ghost you. But yes. the interesting thing about that is that the people conducting a lot of that activity are themselves the victims of human trafficking. Yes. Oh. So wow. this is so important. Wow. This is such a great point, Adam. Is where you see this callous disregard may not be the operator on the end of the keyboard, but the person instrumenting these victims of um, you know, some sort of involuntary servitude or sex trafficking or human trafficking, whatever they're doing, these people that are doing it against their will, but they're able to survive or get whatever ultimate, you know, whether it's their freedom, whatever is going on, if they're being held and this is, you see a lot of this in China, Southeast Asia, um, the person instrumenting these poor people having to do these schemes, that's where the interesting aspects of the Tetrad actually may really live versus the people who are artfully deceiving people, they may actually feel bad. I mean, that's a little harder to tell. But to your point, Adam, the really interesting psychology is the people creating and instrumenting these schemes. Yeah. I mean, if their option is to conduct this activity, uh, no, no matter how uh, odious they, they find it, or they get, you know, zapped with some sort of cattle prod, they're probably going to, to you know, look out for their own self-interest. Of even course. Though but yeah, it's um, 
you know, contrary to that is business email compromise, which um, if you look at what's happened out of Nigeria and, and these kind of confraternities that we've been tracking out of Nigeria who are responsible for a lot of these business email compromise schemes, it's yeah. quite the opposite, right? They, they kind of don't, they're doing this for fun and to make money. And, and so as you start to look at comparing and contrasting these different criminal things, and I think we could go through hundreds of different criminal sure. uh, schemes that we see and start to analyze them all. And I think we'll uh, want to do that in the future. But um, any, anything else you wanted to, uh, to make sure we, we covered here, Cam? No, this was really great. And I think it's, it's a fantastic way of, of, of looking at cyber. I think you guys do a really good job. Your mantra, as you mentioned at the top of the episode, I think is really important is that uh, these attacks, even with AI, and there's a lot of people that say, well, AI, you know, it, these are eventually attacks are going to be all cyber uh, and no people. And the, the reality is that even AI, the learning models that are used is, is by a person. So ultimately, um, for your, your listeners and people who are, are looking at the Intel products that, that CrowdStrike has, is it really does start with an adversary. It really does start with a motivation and behaviors of a person and using cyber as a way to facilitate that, whether criminal or national security. So it's been a real pleasure talking with you all about not only behavior, but maybe some of the darker aspects of behavior that are not often considered in cyber. Yeah, that's that's such a good point too. I, you know, I think AI is probably not cruel or or uh, narcissistic or or has those tendencies, and that's that's something that is a purely meat space problem and not a AI problem. But, <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, and and Cam, I love uh, the the name of your your company, the um, Modus Cyberandi. Any uh, any anything yeah. uh, you, you want to tell people about that real quick? So it's it's a it's a fun take on Modus Operandi, and Modus Operandi is a very traditional. It's a Latin term. Um, and it's it's basically in, in behavioral profiling, it is the practical means that how someone commits their crime. It isn't something that's needs derived or internal, like ritualistic behavior. So when we look at someone's MO, as it's often called, or modus operandi, it's the practical way that they commit their uh, attacks or crimes, and it can change over time. Uh, and so modus cyberandi is simply taking that traditional behavioral profiling concept and uh, bringing it to cyber. And so that is what I named the company. Well, awesome. Well, thanks for coming yeah. on. I look forward to future conversations. We'll bring you yeah, back because this was this was so cool. Yeah, Cameron, looking Likely. forward to, to coming back and, and talking a little more about some nation state and e-crime groups that we're tracking because I think we can map a lot of this evil behavior uh, to some campaigns that we have some really great published reports on. So, well, so thanks thank so much, much. For, for having me. This was a, a great conversation. I look forward to the next one. Take care. You've got it. Ladies and, and gentlemen... That was uh, Cameron Mallon over at, uh, uh, is it Modus, Modus Cyberandi? Cyberandi. All right. I need to practice my Latin, I guess. Um, but no, this, this is a really great topic, right? In fact, I'd love to actually get into um, how some of these personality traits apply to some of the more recent social engineering campaigns that we've been tracking. Um, we played a really great um, audio a clip from a social engineering attack back at our Falcon underground session. And that mm -hmm. I thought captivated the audience and there was a lot of great feedback and folks were asking like, wow, are adversaries becoming that bold where they're just kind of calling and pretending and, you know, working their way into these environments using these remote management tools. And it was such an amazing story. Um, and I think it's a really great opportunity for us to even, you know, kind of tie back in to that concept of 
psychopathy. I have a problem saying that. Do you? Psychopathy is hard to say. Yeah, it's. Uh, it I, I probably couldn't have said it if you didn't just say it. So <laughs> it's been. Uh, thank you for uh, for for stepping out uh, on, uh, you know, in front of that one for me. You know, I'm, you know, I'm just all about risk. <laughs> and so I think we can map some of these. There's some these psychopathy there, probably. Psychopathy. Too. I know, really. I, no, I think that was narcissism. <laughs> but I think that there's some really great social engineering campaigns we can map back to these traits. And I'd love to have Cameron back on. So I thought this was a great, great episode and looking forward to talking a little more about that. So with that said, um, Adam, thanks so much again. Yeah, we always have you. great conversations. It's going to be a great year, great content. Uh, for those uh, listeners, uh, subscribe, like, keep giving us some feedback. We look forward to another amazing year of some great content here on the CrowdStrike Adversary Universe podcast. That's Adam Myers. I'm Christian Rodriguez. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to our podcast and head over to CrowdStrike.com forward slash adversaries to learn more about the many bad guys we track. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Adversary Universe podcast. This is the Adversary Universe podcast.